Now we can get into Ephesians 4. You know, there's power in getting into the Word of God when we first humble ourselves before God. Did you know that? Did you know that the Word has power anyway, but when we humble ourselves, when we come in the right, you remember God said to Moses, take off your shoes, you're on holy ground. Now, the, the presence of God was already there, but the next words would come when we humble ourselves. We talked about this last week, and now we'll pick it up with where we left off in chapter 4. You know, last week we looked at the fact that if we would humble ourselves and bow the knee, as Paul said, that then the blessings would flow, but not just that the blessings would flow because we bowed our knees, but in that surrender, God does what we talked about is a transformation of us. And remember I talked about the fact that everyone says, God bless America, but God, it means God bless and transform. That's what he really wants to do. He will bless us, but he'll transform us in blessing us if we first bow the knee. And we continue this, this humbling of ourselves. If we humble ourselves before God, we'll ultimately humble ourselves to one another. Because even though, we'll, even though we all have the Holy Spirit if we've been saved, we still have this flesh issue that we'll have strife and we'll have conflict. And there's a constant humbling ourselves before God, then humbling ourselves before one another. Humbling ourselves before God, humbling ourselves before one another. And this is why even from the beginning, God says six days a man of work, and the seventh day you're going to rest and come and gather together because you need to come back together. You need to come back together in humility to God, but also humility together as a body, congregationally. And we'll look at what this means. Um, you know, thinking about humbling ourselves before one another. Uh, there was two brothers, and they, they were building something with Legos. And they had gotten about halfway done, and then they were in great disagreement with how the rest of the Lego kingdom should be built. You ever seen disagreements over silly things like this? So they were in great disagreement with how it should be built. One said it should be built this way, the other one said it, and they were getting louder and louder and more upset with one another, and mother comes in and says to the two of them, saying, listen, God will give a great blessing when we humble ourselves to one another and give way to the other one. The older brother said to the younger brother, I'm going to allow God to bless you and do it my way. (laughs) And that's happened sometimes in the church, doesn't it? I mean, people can spiritualize their humility, but it's really not humility. They can spiritualize things, but they really haven't given any ground. They can spiritualize things, but really they're holding on to their way, their mindset, their way of doing things. It's my way or the highway type mentality. And we want to look this morning at uh, this concept of unity through humility. If you're taking notes, obviously that's the title of our time, the word this morning. And we'll look at the next couple of weeks, uh, something I've subtitled, Marks of a Healthy Church. And it's really not just marks of a healthy church. A healthy church is healthy individual believers. So if you don't have healthy individual believers, you don't have a healthy church. If you don't have individual healthy cells in your body, you don't have a healthy body. But we want to have individual, individually healthy walks with the Lord, healthy relationships with the Lord, and that will in turn... If our hearts stay surrendered in humility to God, we'll have these healthy relationships one with another, 
And then really the gates of hell can't prevail against us. That's what Jesus said. The gates of hell will not be able to prevail against you. Now Satan will continue to attack. And one of the things that he constantly does, he sows discord among the brethren. He also constantly accuses the brethren. You ever felt like Satan's accusing you? Or causing, why am I having tension with this other person? A lot of times the enemy is sowing these things. We want to look at uh, what Paul has, give, has given by the Spirit uh, to help us individually in our walk, but also collectively as a church, to become more unified and more filled with the Holy Spirit. And the first thing we want to look at is found in this very first verse. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling of which you were called. Now, in the next several verses, when we get to verse 7 through 16, Paul talks about some specific leadership callings, pastors, apostles, evangelists, things like that. But here he's talking to every single believer. He's not talking to pastors per se. He's not talking to deacons or elders or any other type of leadership form within the church. He's talking to all the church. But isn't it noteworthy, as Paul states, I therefore the prisoner of the Lord. It's noteworthy that Paul reminds the Ephesians a second time here of his present status of a prisoner of Rome. He was imprisoned at this point, writing this letter. But he doesn't say he's a prisoner of Rome, does he? Did you notice what he says? Prisoner of the Lord. When you're walking with Jesus, your circumstances are not from the world, they're from God. I'll say that again. When you're walking with the Lord, your circumstances are not from the world. Now, if you're walking in the world, your circumstances can certainly be from the world. But Paul's not a prisoner because of bad conduct. He's a prisoner because of holy conduct. Because he's given his life, Lord. He's a prisoner of the Lord. And he'll remind them a third time in the sixth chapter. You can look over at 6 verse 20, uh, where he says, for which I am an ambassador in chains. So he three times, a verily, 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 if you will, uh, Paul reminds that he's a prisoner of the Lord and in chains. Now, we may be tempted to blow past this, but since it's mentioned three times, I don't think that would be wise to blow past that Paul feels led of the Spirit three times to remind them he's in prison because of his walk with the Lord and his faith in Christ. But notice, Paul just isn't, he's not just in prison, he's not just in chains, but he's in prison encouraging other people. Not bemoaning not in self-pity, not in anger towards God, not in bitterness towards God. Instead, he's sending out letters of encouragement to other people. By the way, you cannot do this unless Holy, the Holy Spirit's in you. It would not be part of our sin nature to be in prison for doing the right thing and instead of whining and complaining, send out letters of encouragement to other people. That's a work of God. It's a whole supernatural work. And so the Holy Spirit is not only using Paul, but he's using him to write Scripture. Something that will be settled forever in heaven was written in prison, and even when we get to heaven, these passages will, will still remain. They'll remain for all eternity. And Paul, here he's a prisoner. He's not the pastor of a megachurch. He doesn't have a radio broadcast. He doesn't have a TV broadcast. He doesn't have internet streaming live like we are right now, and hi to all of you that are watching. He doesn't have a list of Christian bestsellers at Lifeway. Now, there's nothing wrong with those things. Don't think I, I'm not putting those things down. I'm making a distinction 
that there's seasons. God may have seasons where there's men of God that I love to listen to that have everything I just mentioned, and they're being used greatly of the Lord. I don't know why some get prison and some don't. I don't know that. None of us have the answer to that. But I want you to understand, even though none of those things are wrong, and God's using men that have some of these, or uh, even women that write, have written certain books that have been really great, some of God's greatest work is lowly and way out of the way. You ever heard of Bethlehem? Did anyone have a clue that Jesus was being born? It was out of the way. No one knew about it. A couple of shepherds knew about it. But Paul's in prison, and he's really doing an incredible work. He's writing scripture that's still blessing. Do you know how many pastors and megachurches have preached Ephesians? Tons. Probably every pastor that's ever preached the New Testament has sometime preached Ephesians because it's a pivotal book on the understanding of the church altogether. So even though he doesn't have any megaphone, he's writing a letter in prison, and that letter has made it all the way to Richmond, Virginia in 2017. That's the power of the Holy Spirit. That's the power of God working through him. So here is Paul. He's writing from prison with a message from God to the church. And what is the message? The message is to walk worthy and to understand that walking worthy could land you and I in prison. In other countries, it's landing people in prisons right now today, not in the future, now. Someday it could land us in prison in this country. I don't know. I hope not. that's not the case, but it certainly could be. You know, Paul Bunyan, he wrote Pilgrim's Progress. Some of you have probably read, read Pilgrim's Progress. It's a book that uh, every Christian will benefit from reading. He said, I will stay in prison till moss grows on my eyelids rather than disobey God. That's walking worthy, isn't it? That's a heart that's determined to walk worthy. We've been called to walk worthy of Christ, but do we have that desire? Do we have a desire to walk worthy? Do we truly desire that our life would please and honor Christ? Not our wishes, not our plans, but His will and His plans. Because Paul certainly wouldn't have drawn up, hey, you know what I'd like to do? I'd like to go to prison. That sounds like a great place to hang out. And could I go there for a while? And could I spend extra time there and make sure I'm cold and damp and, and don't have much to eat? Because this sounds like a really fun way to spend life. Not our wishes, not our plans, but his will in response to what? Grace. It's a prayer that says, here's our response to the Lord, our response to grace. If you've received grace, if you've been saved, then you understand, the more you understand grace, the more you respond, as Jesus said, thy will be done. That simple prayer, thy will be done. You can say it the rest of your life. By the way, some of the most simple things are the most profound for the rest of your life. I say often to myself, the Lord is my shepherd. Because if I don't remind myself who's the shepherd, then things get out of line. Thy will be done. But it's a prayer that says, Lord, I want to walk worthy. You have to start by saying, Lord, I want to have your desire. Lord, I want to walk worthy. Help me and increase the desire in me to walk worthy. Because you might sense I don't have much desire to walk worthy. But, but deeper down you say, but I kind of want to walk worthy. So you have to be praying. Lord, help me increase this desire. Increase that truth in my mind and my heart to walk worthy. Give me a desire to pray for it and just start praying for it. 
It's not a striving for this desire, but it's abiding, and God gives that desire. That makes sense? When you abide, that, that desire comes from the Holy Spirit. He then says, I want you to walk worthy. And you start praying, Lord, help me to walk worthy. And then he says, now you're praying the right prayer. And all of a sudden, the buildup comes where you start to not just pray it, but desire it, really desire it. When I was a kid, no one in the family liked mint chocolate chip ice cream. And my parents would go to this one place where they served it, and they would just pass it down the tables. I was like one. And they would just give it to me. Guess what I still like to this day? Because someone just kept spoon-feeding it to me. And I like it even to this day. And if God says, if you just keep putting the bowl of desire in front of you and keep praying it and praying it and praying it, you will end up liking the will of God. Amen. It doesn't happen. So, well, I prayed once and it didn't come. You've got a lot more bowls to eat. And it will come. You may not be in prison, but you may be in a difficult time this morning. You may be in a trying time. You might feel like a prison in a cell or some trial of pain in your life. Let God reveal the reason, but in his timing. He may not reveal the reason to you immediately. He will reveal part of the reason. He won't necessarily reveal every detail. Do you understand this? Did Job get a lot of details from God? No, Job got the person of God. And he got wisdom from God, but he doesn't get all the answers. You may not get every detail, but God will start to reveal you to the larger work. Do you know people can endure great pain when they realize that there's purpose of it? It's been well said. Once people understand there's purpose for their pain, they can bear it. And when you realize and say, hey, if this is conforming me to the image of Christ, I can bear it. If Paul says, if this is causing me to encourage and help others, I can bear this. And it started to be an encouragement to him. It could be chastening your life, because whom the Lord loves, he chastens. Don't discount that God may say, hey, there's sin in your life that needs to go. There's rebellion, there's resistance. That could be. It could just be refining. Just God refining you, saying, I'm now taking to a new level of maturity. In that refining process, Jesus said, I'll prune you that you'd bear more fruit. We don't like to be pruned. But when you prune your rose bush, it'll actually, more roses will pop out. If you don't prune it, then they won't. But you prune it, and more will come. Same with fruit trees. It could be God just uh, advancing us to a greater work. But through that, he brings us through these valleys of humility. It could be to prepare us to comfort other people because we talked about this Wednesday night in our Proverbs study. Once you've gone through something, you're not a stranger to it, and when you meet someone else who's going through it, they can really receive from you because you can put a real arm around and say, hey, can I pray with you? I've gone through this. You don't overdo that, by the way, because sometimes people's sharp pain at that moment. But you still have a relatability. And first is someone who's never experienced, they can't relate. And God has us uh, go through these things to be a comfort to others. It could just be that we live in a fallen world. That's ha that happens too. And we're just learning endurance and patience. Because we're in a fallen world, you have to have endurance and patience. It could be all the above. But no matter what, we're still to do what? Walk worthy of our calling. That's what he says here. That you would walk worthy of the calling. Well, does this mean in your prison? Yes. How about when things are going good? Yes. How about when things are in the middle? Yes. Walk worthy of that calling. 
And Paul here is he's helping others walk worthy, even if his own current circumstances are very tough, and we're to do the same. With the help of the Holy Spirit, we can do this, but only with the help of the Holy Spirit. Without the help of the Holy Spirit, you and I can't encourage anybody, but with him, God is faithful, isn't he? Isn't he faithful? Can't you look back at seasons of your life? You know, we have a, we have a short-term memory. Uh, I was telling my daughters, I said, you know, when, when our other daughter gets back from camp, immediately she won't remember anything. She'll remember some of the bad stuff. I said, but a year from now, she'll only remember the fun stuff. Oh, it was so great. It was so great. She'll have forgotten mosquitoes and all this other kind of stuff. But sometimes we forget God's brought us through many things. And we need to say, Lord, you've been faithful in the past. You'll be faithful again. And God says, you just walk worthy. Did I, bring you, did I not bring you through the Red Sea? Did I bring you through the wilderness? Did I bring you through here? You didn't have food. I sent you ravens. You didn't have this. I sent you manna. Over and over again, Moses had to constantly remind the people, has God not been faithful? He has been faithful. When we're in pain and difficulty, we actually then really start to align with the heart of God. Jesus was acquainted with suffering. Did you know that it says that, right? He was acquainted with grief. We may not like that, but that is where God softens us and grows us. And in this time where Paul says, hey, I'm a prisoner, I still have to walk worthy, and so do all of you. You still have to walk worthy. You're not guaranteed that every season of life will be a green meadow. We actually see more of God's sustaining power if we can say in our hearts, you be glorified in my life regardless of circumstances. Lord, help me to reflect you to other people. That prayer, if you continue to pray that prayer sincerely, that is not a prayer that God will not hear. He will honor that prayer. If our prayer is, Lord, you be honored, you be glorified, that's what God wants to hear. God says, now you're not questioning me anymore. You're simply responding to grace, responding to obedience. And then we can walk in this calling in all of our seasons. Let's take a look at the next thing in the text here. Verse 2 and 3, this is uh, kind of the meat of the matter for us as individuals, us as a church body. With all lowliness and gentleness... With long-suffering, bearing with one another in love. Boy, this is not America right now, is it? Lowliness, gentleness, bearing with one another. People can't stand each other these days for the dumbest of things. Endeavoring to keep unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. But you know, when the world is in chaos and they hate each other over the dumbest of things, or they hate each other over you're a Republican or you're a Democrat, hate each other over skin color, hate each other over class warfare, hate each other over all kinds of things. We as a church have the greatest opportunity to be a light and a witness because people will look, and they might not say much, but they're watching. How do you all do that? How is it that you all have real love for each other? And this is what Paul's getting at. In Ephesus, in the church, and God is bringing people from around the world. So it was a crossroads, and God's bringing all these people. Paul says, you're going to have to come together in unity and love, but it has to be unified in the Lord. If walking worthy of Christ becomes our heart's desire, that yearning of the inner man we talked about last week, just I remind you again, keep cultivating that inner man in the Word, in prayer, asking God these things. But when we commit to how we commit, Lord, we commit to our calling to walk 
then we need to also commit in these second couple of verses to how to walk that walk. We know what we're called to do. We're called to walk worthy, but how do we walk worthy? Well, this is what Paul is getting at right here. This is how to walk worthy. And this commitment is not that we say we have some great power to keep the commitment. That's it. That's it. I'm going to walk lowly, gentle, long-suffering, bearing with another in love. From now on, I'm going to be all these things. You walk out this door, you will not be able to keep that up for long at all if it's not with the help of the Lord. True? Won't be long. You'll be like the two brothers with the Lego, right? You'll be right back saying, hey, I'm going to bless you and let you do it my way. This commitment, again, it's not that we have some great power to keep it, but our commitment is a trust that he can help us keep it, right? I know whom I believed in. Persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed. He helps us commit it. And when we commit, say, Lord, I want to keep this commitment, he helps us with his power to die to ourselves and to rely on him. He helps us to die to ourselves. We, we can't even die to ourselves without his help. We can't even desire to die to ourselves without his help. You'll never really meet a Christian, ever, with some great willpower that you wish you had. Let me say that again. You will never meet a Christian in your lifetime that has some great and power, uh, incredible willpower that you wish you had, or maybe even assume you could never have. You'll have seen or met a Christian that had a desire that God cultivated and fed with his Holy Spirit, and then... It really wasn't their willpower. It was the will of God driving their willpower. Does that make sense? And you ask God to fan that desire, and you can start to take wobbly steps that become stronger steps. But it's really not that you have some great willpower. It's because you have some great crying out power. That's what it is. It's not some great willpower. Man, I I wish I could be like Spurgeon or Deal Moody. I don't have that kind of willpower. I wish I could be like Billy Graham and give my entire life and re- preach, preach, preach. You know? No, no, you ask God, Lord, give me that kind of desire, and he will. But we're not usually not asking for that. We're usually asking for, oh, give me a raise, give me this, give me that, right? But we're asking for spiritual things, God will say. Remember Solomon? God comes to him. He could have anything he wanted. What did he ask for? Wisdom. How many young people would ask for that? They would say, I'll take a Ferrari. Uh, Is this like a genie in a bottle moment? I'll do anything. I want to be rich and famous. And he could have asked for anything. God could give it to him, right? He said, give me wisdom. Oh, for people that would ask God for the right things, because he says, you want a desire to be holy? But but the problem, you know why people don't pray for desire to be holy? They don't really want to be holy. So they don't pray that way. Lord, help me to die to self. I want to pray to that. And then God says, if you do that, I'll give you this desire to go lower. John said that I may decrease, that he may what? Increase. These wobbly steps would become fueled by the faith that God imparts to us. And then his willpower, his willpower goes into our inner man and becomes willpower. His thy will be done power goes into our will and it becomes power and then we take steps and it's almost like taking a step if I was to take a step off this stage and it becomes land that's what God starts to do in our life that's what he starts to do with our faith and our walk so that we know 
what our calling is, but we need God's help of how to walk out that calling. How do we take these steps forward? What does the walk of a worthy walk look like individually and for the church? Well, here it is. These are the areas of surrender that please Christ, that give him glory, that protect his church. Do you want God to protect this church? I do. Do you know that Satan would love to destroy this church? Not just our church. There's churches down the street he'd love to destroy. There's churches all around Richmond. There's, like I've said before, we're not the only church that loves Jesus. He wants to destroy them too. All around the world, he wants to destroy. But he does it through little cracks in the wall, little things with people. Little issues become big issues. You know, people divorce. It doesn't happen overnight sometimes, does it? Sometimes it's little issues that cry, and they, they fester, and they become bigger and bigger and over time, they become destructive. But I want God's protection for the church, but also you personally and me personally. We need his protection. We need him to perfect peace among his people. And you and me, we are his people. Not because of anything we've done, but by his grace. And the world and other believers, as I said earlier, they'll look on, they will see it. They'll see when the work of God is seeping through our lives, and that's a good seeping, right? It's seeping through our lives and saturating us. And some may deny it, but they really do see it. I've, I've, I've been a Christian long enough to have people come back to me, even unsaved people, and admit they saw things that they acted like they didn't see in a good way. You know, I haven't told you all this, but, you know, you used to rub me the wrong way, but now I see what God... You guys really are this, or you really are that, or you really are uh, walking there. You're not perfect, but people see. Years later, sometimes months later, Jesus said it in John 13, 35. I remind myself of this passage plenty, and if you don't, start reminding yourself of it. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. There it is. Jesus said, this is how the world will know that you really are my disciple, if you love one another. Not if you have biblical knowledge, but that's a good thing. Not if you live a moral life, well, that's commanded. Not, a, not about your spiritual gifts or my spiritual gifts. They're helpful if they're used correctly, but that's not what he said. He didn't say, this is how all men will know, because your spiritual gifts, your biblical knowledge, your moral life. He didn't say that. He said, if you have love for one another. Not our boldness, though we need boldness. Not even our sharing the gospel. He didn't even say, this is how men will know you're truly my disciple, because you, you witness. He didn't say that, even though we are called to witness. We are, again, that's commanded. Know the real proof to the world of, it's built on conditional love. Would you agree the world's built on conditional love? Very conditional love. Very one-sided to a world that's built on conditional love, that's self-centered and not actually love, is a group of people that love one another sacrificially, humbly dying to self, humbly dying to self, humbly dying to self. That, Jesus said, that is what the world will notice. And then when you witness, and then when you live a moral life, and then when you share the Word of God, it has a quickening power. Because love should be the tip of the sword coming in. Speak the truth in what? Love. If you love one another, the world will see it. People, you know, when, I, when, the, when me and my wife got saved at Calvary Fort Lauderdale, 
we noticed that the people had a harmony we weren't used to seeing. We noticed the people had a love for each other. When it was greet time, they actually greeted and hugged each other. That was weird. Somebody tried to hug us too. What's going on here, right? That kind of thing. It's a genuineness. I said before, I got it from Pastor Joe and Philly, you can't fake genuine. You cannot fake it. The world sees real love. They know it. They might ignore it. They might act like they hate you. They might, oh, I'll never come to your church. But deep down, they see it. And those seeds are being planted, and they're hearing the Word of God. And it's not just that we're to love each other sacrificially for a few days, or a few weeks, or a few years, but the entire span of our life. You mean I still got to love sacrificially when I get to be 90? Yep. What about when I'm in my 50s and I have a midlife crisis? Yep. Not that you have to have that. You don't. But you got to love sacrificially the entire, entirety of your life. So do I. But before we look at the characteristics of Christ-like commitment, understand the vigilance and intentionality that we required for a lifetime. Look at verse 5. It says, endeavoring to keep the unity. Endeavoring. The Spirit conveys that will walk in this manner will have to maintain unity and love. We'll have to maintain it. Love and unity are not passive things. They're not passive. They don't just kind of happen on their own. They take active participation. They take surrender, and guess what they take? Resurrender again and again and again. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand. How many married couples have ever had to ask forgiveness of one another? You thought that ended 10 years ago? You thought that ended forever? You thought that your, your days of actually stepping on each other's toes were done? They're never done. But the love can actually go stronger. The person you'll probably offend more in life than any other person is your spouse, if those of you that are married. Those of you that are single, you'll find someone else to offend the most. But uh, maybe it's your mom, <laughs> maybe it's mom, maybe it's your daughter, maybe it's, you know, everyone has somebody that is number one target on accident, right? It's not that you mean it to be that way. It just happens because of sin nature. Someone in life is going to get the worst of your offenses, or the most, guaranteed. There's someone who has the longest list, and they will be most Christ-like if they still forgive you, and you'll be Christ-like if you're on the other end of that. So you'll have to re-surrender. We'll have to re-surrender. It's a fairly regular adjustment and course correction and adjustment to our actions, adjustment to our prayers, adjustment to our priorities. It happens individually, happens collectively. Happens in a little family at home, happens in a larger church family. There's constant adjustments, reprioritization. Please forgive me. Boy, I shouldn't have said that. Why did I send the email that way? What was I thinking? Why didn't I use the wait 48-hour principle, right? These things happen. But the word here is endeavoring. The Greek word is spudazo. Spudazo. I don't know a lot of Greek, but I just can, I have commentaries. So, and I will never know it, but the commentaries help me. And they even now have the pronunciation, which is really helpful. But um, what it means, this Greek word for endeavoring is spudazo means to make haste, to exert oneself, and to give diligence. Now, think about that to make haste, to exert oneself, and to give diligence. There's nothing easy about those terms. All of those require something of us to make haste, to exert oneself, or diligence. There's nothing easy about that. 
what we know to be true has to override what we feel. Did you hear that? What we know to be true has to override what we feel. Well, I feel hurt. Well, Paul says, why don't you encourage them? I don't want to encourage them. I'm in prison of my pain. Paul says, write the letter anyway. Encourage them. Write a thank you note to them. Remember that cake they made? You did this. What we know to be true overrides our feelings. And God will honor that. By the way, the more we do this in our life, the more God will actually start to pull chains off of us. We're prisoners of our own selves half the time. But we know we have to make haste to correct our attitudes. We can't let things fester, and that's what it means. We can't let it, uh, we've offended someone, we can't say, well, I'll get to it in about three years. Now we have to get back to them and say, you know, I don't know what got into me. I just wasn't thinking, you know. People are really accommodating usually if we come with a humble heart. Most people don't want to anymore hold on to a grudge, and you want to hold on to the guilt. Both sides usually, but we have to humble. Someone has to be the more humble and say, you know, it's on me. Will you forgive me? Let's have a hug and move forward. We have to make haste in those times. We have to exert some effort by the Spirit. Lord, I don't really want to do this. The Spirit says, do it. Go forward anyway. Make these things right. You have to give diligence to it. We have to endeavor when things... Now think about endeavoring too in the course of anything. We have to endeavor to maintain peace when there is peace. We have to endeavor to maintain peace when there's some chaos and conflict. And we have to maintain peace after we've come through the chaos and conflict. There's never a time... Endeavoring means it's a constant, continual, perpetual thing. You always have to be say, Lord, help me be a peacemaker at all times. Before a crisis, during a crisis, after a crisis, at all times. There's never a season off in loving and seeing peace. There's never a season off in a family. There's never a season off in a church. Now, when we recognize that, we're not blown back by Satan's schemes. And we can actually say, hey, this is, stop, let's pray. This is of the enemy. We shouldn't be. I think we're getting riled up with each other, whatever it may be. There's four areas here that Paul outlines, and they all reflect the heart and life of Jesus. Look at these four areas. Number one, he says, with lowliness and gentleness. We're to be gentle. Well, first, uh, first, let me say humble first. Um, The first is humility. Humble. And we have to pray, Lord... You have to pray it your whole life. Lord, make me humble. Keep me humble. This is not a value that the world really prizes, is it? Do you think the world idolizes humility? No. Go look at the the top 10 Instagram rulers of the Instagram world or the top 10 Twitter people or all the other things. It's not humility that the world honors or prizes or puts on a pedestal. But you know what God said of Moses Numbers 12.3, now the man Moses was very humble, more than all the men who were on the face of the earth. What a testimony, huh? Moses, God picked Moses not because he had the most skill of any man, but he had a genuine humility, and God said, that is what I want. David, you don't think you can be king? That's why you're going to be king. God looks for a humble heart. He wants us to have humility. 
A great work of God and uniting people is always going to be done by people that have humility as their leadership trait. If you're not humble, God says, the world can have your leadership, but it's not going to be used for me. And God wants all of you to lead people to Christ, but we do it with humility. And we lead one another with humility. We have to be willing to die to ourselves. He also says gentleness here. Gentleness. We have to use soft and tender tones. You know, it's not just soft and tender words. You know a lot of communication is body language. I'm going to use gentle words, but my body's going to say it different, right? I'm going to make the point one way or another. No, we're to be gentle with our words, but also with how we communicate with one another, how we interact with each other. Start to practice, say, Lord, that not, and by the way, false humility, that's not what we're talking about. Please don't start writing each other stuff like, I am not worthy of anything, you know, uh, I, am, I am the worst servant that God has ever created. That's not helpful. Just humble say, hey, you're doing a great job. I appreciate what you're doing. Uh, and just putting other people first is really what it comes down to. But gentleness, using words, you know, somebody, somebody gets fired up, flames you, you don't flame them back. Jesus said you don't return with that type of response. Emails, text, talking, Facebook, all these things that people, we have a gentleness. The world's watching what we say, by the way. Hey, what? You know, you guys say you're gentle. Really are you? We're to be patient, he says here. Bearing with one and a long-suffering, long-suffering and bearing. Um, the thing that we don't like about long-suffering is it's long, right? We can, we can, we're okay with a half a second of suffering, but long-suffering. Bearing with you, hey, I've been bearing with you for a while now, and you're still a jerk, right? You know, that kind of thing, right? <laughs> That's what you want to say. You're not allowed to say that, though. The Holy Spirit will say you can't say that because... You were a jerk too, and you know, uh, and at times you still are, and all these things. So we say, I don't know what we say. We get God gives us something to say. Sometimes I, I don't know what to say. Lord, give me, uh, give me some patience here. So, but we remember how patient God's been with us, right? He's been so patient with us. I really know God's been patient with me. Do you know God's been patient with you? Like, I'm not just, I'm not saying that for effect. I know God has been patient with me. And I look and say, God, you've been so patient with me. How can I not be patient with this person and this person and this person and my kids? And on and on it goes. And the neighbor and everything else. And, but the more patient we are, the more we reflect Jesus. Because he was patient with people. It, you know, some people take a spiritual pride. I'm just not a, I, I, don't, I don't have much patience for anything. You should not voice that anymore. That might be impressive to the world, but it's not impressive to God. Say, you could say, I don't have the patience I need. Would you pray with me that I begin to develop that spiritual strength in my life? That would be an appropriate thing to say. You know, we understand how long it's been since we've gotten it all together. So we're okay that God is still working on other people too. We're patient and last loving. What does that mean? He says, uh, unity in the spirit and the bond of peace, but he says, uh, bearing with one another in love. We strive to show love. We become like Barnabas. I love that Barnabas, his name means son of encouragement. Start encouraging people. 
it'll start to lift your spirit of things like anger, depression, anxiety, all these things. The more you become an encourager, write letters from the prisons of where you're at. Write notes for the prisons where you're at. Become an encourager, and when you do, you're actually walking in the footsteps of Jesus. When you walk in the footsteps of Jesus, when we're singing that he's Prince of Peace, he really will become your Prince of Peace. Not just words, you'll actually have him impart the peace. And the more peace you have from him, the more peace you give to other people. And then love begins to flow, and you're able to show appreciation. You're able to say, now I have compassion for that person. And you look past their faults and say, I wonder what's going on in their life, why they are so bitter. And you can really pray for them. Now, I'm not saying pity. I'm saying you really do care for them, really care for them. And then, you know, someday that might be the very person that breaks down and you are hugging and you can't believe that that person softened themselves, that you had prayed them through with love. Last thing we look at this morning, we'll come to a close here, is our communion. And that's found in verses 4, 5, and 6. There is one body, one spirit, this you're called, and one hope of your calling. There's that calling again. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father who is above all and through all and in you all. Verse 5 and, verse five and 6, Paul sums up our commonality. Our commonality is the body of Christ. These are the things we're all bonded together under heaven in the family of God. It's a divine and supernatural oneness in God. It's not a oneness in the fact that we're all from RVA, because we're not all from RVA. A bunch of you are from different places. It's not a oneness in the fact that we're all women, because we're not all women, or all men, or all this, or all that. We, it's a oneness in the supernatural spirit of God. Because we may look different, have different preferences, have you know, some of you like this food, some of you don't, but our oneness is in the Holy Spirit. And he wraps it up. With maybe a little southern lingo, he says, you all at the bottom there. Uh, you could say y'all there if you prefer. Okay, he's, he's not going southern there. But he does use seven facets of our oneness to the Lord. Seven facets here it is the seven spirits of God the Bible mentions. But here there's seven facets of this oneness that he mentions. And that unequivocally, we are now to be, Paul is making by mentioning seven, not one, not two, not three, but seven things he's making crystal clear. We are to be one, 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 one. No longer islands of self. Brother and sister, if you're not in fellowship, if you're not cultivating this oneness with the body of Christ, with your time, with your talent, with your treasure and the things of the Lord and the priorities of your life, let this passage compel you to start doing that. Let this passage compel you to arrange your life priorities to start to be part of the oneness of the Lord that we're all called to. We're all called to this. To not pick up the phone to this call is to resist God. That makes sense? Paul says you're all called. The phone call's coming from God. I'm not picking up. I'm fine being an island of myself. I were to pick it up and say, Lord, on the other end says, it's time to be one. Yes, Lord received. I'll move forward. Here's the one. Here's the seven things. Let's look at them briefly and we'll close with this. One body. What does that mean? Well, one church family. If you're taking notes, you can enumerate them or you can underline them in your Bible. One body. We're one family. We're one at CCR. We're one 
There's nobody as above anyone else. It's just one body that Jesus is the head of. He says there's one spirit. There's one spirit that lives in us. There's not many Holy Spirits. There's one Holy Spirit. Amen? There's not many different spirits of God. There is one Holy Spirit. The Spirit of the living God lives inside of us. If you're saved, it's the same Holy Spirit as in your brother and sister, and that's how you can actually die to each other because the same Spirit is speaking and saying, both of you, humble, both of you, fall down deeper. Both of you come together in love, and there's one Spirit inside of us, and that Spirit directs us all to the Word of God and back to Jesus. Word of God, back to Jesus. Word of God, back to Jesus. Then he says there's one hope. We've talked about this word hope. It means joyful expectation. We all have or should have, and we all need to agree to have, the same joyful expectation of the return of Jesus, that he's coming back, that he is told us, I go to my father's house to prepare a place for you, and where I am, you will be there also. Is that a good hope or not? That's not my words. Jesus said, comfort each other with these kind of things, that I've gone to prepare a place for you. You think your house is nice? Jesus says, I'm building a house that's beyond your imagination. We have one hope in the return of Jesus, and that we'll be sinless. Can't you not wait to be sinless? You won't have to pray about sin in heaven. You'll worship Jesus, but you will not be asking, Lord, help me with this issue that I, you know, that's not going to happen. We'll be sinless. We'll have perfect bodies. You won't have to diet anymore. We have this hope. This is our, this makes our calling, by the way, this makes our calling and our uh, walk in this world more reasonable, and we can do it with joy because we have this great hope. We can ignore the heat and the injuries and the insults because he's given us this great hope. He goes on, he says, we have one hope, and then he says, we have one Lord. We have one shepherd, one king, and his name is Jesus. And his commandments align us. He doesn't give you different commandments than me. If he says love one another, that's for you, that's for me, that's for all of us. There's not a different set of commandments. His commandments keep us all under the same authority. We have one Lord. We have one faith. He says one faith here. We have a common salvation. It's built on the finished and singular work of the blood of Jesus and his resurrection. It's built on the word of God, which is settled forever. There's not many faiths. There's one faith. There's one way, one truth, one life. We have one faith. And then he says there's one baptism. We were all baptized into Christ. Now, this is not primarily about water baptism, though water baptism can come into view as secondary and important. But the the primary view of this one baptism is that we're all baptized into Jesus by the Holy Spirit, by the Spirit of God. And then water baptism is a picture of that, Father, Son, in the Holy Spirit. So it is a picture of the baptism that takes place of us being baptized into Christ. And then he closes in verse 6, one God and Father. God has made one family of every tongue, every tribe, every nation, every culture, every gender, every age, every skin color, every shape, every size, every height, every gift, every abilities, even disabilities. All of these things, every single one of us has been adopted And by the way, once you realize we've all been adopted, that alone should keep us all humble. None of us were born royalty. 
We were adopted into the family of God, and that alone should humble us and cause us to express back to him, thy will be done, Lord, help me to die to self, amen? To be unified in humility. Let's close in prayer.